0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: So I think we first met, I was, I was trying to remember, I think it was 93, and we were both serving in the Australian Army, and we did the Special Forces Selection course together, and um, I remember dragging your ass through that, and... Um, a fair part of your green beret is attributed to to me. I sort of see it the other way around. <laughs> I th- I think I still
2: I still carry the back injury from uh, from carrying you through that course, but but maybe we'll have to just agree to disagree on that <laughs> one.
1: Welcome to the Movember podcast. I'm your host Adam Garoni, one of the co-founders of the Movember Foundation. This show is dedicated to the real stories about dealing, and sometimes not dealing, with life's challenges, drawing out the tools that lead to a happier, healthier, and longer life. My goal on this podcast is talk about the real shit. And on this episode, I actually get to do that with an old mate of mine, Mick Aston, who I served with in the Australian Army, about his transition from military life to civilian life after 28 years of service.
2: Well, I spent, spent a two-year operational tour in, in Londonderry, in Northern Ireland, uh, and then a tour in Iraq, and two tours in Afghanistan.
1: Mick Aston was raised in Queensland, the northern part of Australia, and he joined the Australian Forces, where I served with him for a few years, before transferring to the British Armed Forces. Mick has done tours of Northern Ireland, Iraq, and Afghanistan, and in 2013, he was awarded the Distinguished Service Order by Her Majesty at Buckingham Palace. A year ago, Mick retired from the Royal Army, and so I wanted to have him on the podcast to ask him what comes after a life dedicated to military service.
2: It's a big adjustment. It's a big adjustment, and uh, we went through a decompression period uh, en route back from Turin um, because it is all-consuming. You're living at 24 hours a day on operations, and you can't take that same approach when you come back to see your family, that's for sure. So you've got to make that adjustment pretty pretty quickly. But also it's a big adjustment for the families too.
1: I met Mick in our early 20s. We're both officers in the Australian Army. We both ended up on the same special forces selection course, and that's where we really bonded. I mean, I'm very proud of this, knowing you. But you were awarded the um, the Military Cross, one of the nation's highest awards for bravery. Can you tell us what led to that award?
2: Yeah, I was awarded the Military Cross in a, in a, for actions in Afghanistan, uh, in the, in the Sangin Valley um, as a, as a company commander. I was surrounded by some brilliant people um, who did some who did some incredible things in some pretty. Pretty difficult uh, combat actions in in the, in the Sangin Valley, and I looked. Uh, I mean, you could have given that you could have given that award to any number of men in in that company following our very very demanding and challenging tour uh, in two thousand and seven with um, with First Battalion, the Royal Anglian Regiment. You know, there was it was a it was a hard hard tour. Um, it was a tour of a lifetime for a professional soldier, and I waited probably 20 years for that experience. I think I was was 36, 37 at the time.
1: In the summer of 2012, Mick commanded the Transition Support Unit in one of the largest and most complex areas of Afghanistan at the time. Can you paint the picture of um, what it was like? Did you have an operating base and and perhaps talk us through one of those more sort of challenging and and, um, dangerous situations?
2: Um, Yeah, of course I can. Uh, It was... um it was early on in the campaign uh, in two thousand and seven, and and the British Army's involvement there lasted um, lasted just over ten years. and And we were one of the we were one of the earlier uh, formations to rotate through uh, Helmand Province in two thousand and seven. Uh, I think we were we were the third we were the third rotation through there. One particularly striking event was uh, in a town called Sangin uh, in the. Uh, in the uh, uh in the Sangin Valley at the, the the top of the Helmand River where we uh, my com- my company was a was a strike company so we we spent a lot of time uh, maneuvering uh, we spent a couple of months maneuvering uh in the desert uh moving into into trouble spots to provide security to engage with the locals to to train with the Afghan police and and, and provide that um Hand on the shoulder to the Afghan army, and one particular action which will stay with me for the rest of my life is uh, we did a patrol uh, into Sangin. It was our first time there, and Sangin was a very, very dangerous town, and still is today. Some you know, ten years later, and we set off with about fifteen or sixteen vehicles to go into to do a, a recce of Sangin, and we were going to go to the to the base there, and. As we uh, as we set off, uh, and we entered into the town, we we stopped at a we stopped at a Afghan army base to, to talk with the British troops there and, and also with the Afghans. And as, as we left that base on the main road into uh, into Sangin, the six one one, just a dirt road, with, surrounded by mud compounds, and Sangin's a, a decent sized town. Um, we were caught in a large scale complex Taliban ambush which involved about uh, about 40 Taliban uh, fighters that were in about seven or eight firing positions they had uh, heavy weapons uh and they initiated the ambush with with two rocket propelled grenades that hit the vehicle in front of me uh and hit hit one of the um most popular and engaging charismatic uh soldiers in our company um uh, and which which nearly killed him. He has, a, he has a sniper in the company and nearly blew his arm off and severe head injuries. And the vehicle was, his vehicle was on fire. And then then basically all hell erupted. And we were uh, we were right in the middle of this perfectly planned ambush. And uh, we had to do you know we had to do what you have to do in those situations. And the worst thing to the thing you don't want to have to do ideally is to, is to shoot your way out of an ambush. But that's what we that's what we found ourselves doing. Um, and there were some remarkable acts of uh, of valor on that day. Um, one of the one of the private soldiers ran back into that burning vehicle because we weren't sure in the in the heat of the ambush, with with everything kicking off, that uh, that all the all the soldiers had had got out of that vehicle that was on fire, and we we were concerned that there might have been um, wounded or or dead soldiers still in the back of that vehicle, and a private soldier ran back. And uh, through the through the ambush to, to check, and then uh, he carried he carried uh, Private back and put him in the back of another vehicle and rendered rendered him first aid. He, he killed a Taliban soldier with his pistol uh, in an alleyway that was trying to sort of get in his way, uh, and then got back into the vehicle and shut the door and. And, and basically saved that guy's save that guy's life, and he too was recognised by the Queen for his valor. It was, it was a tremendous, a tremendous action that unfolded in front of me. Um, my vehicle was my vehicle was hit by two RPGs, injuring the uh, the top cover soldier, a young Royal Marine, on the top, and I had to kazavak him. Um, I got out of the vehicle, got out of the armoured vehicle in the ambush, and, and carried him forward. Uh, into the into the ambulance vehicle and then had to get back and I met up with my sergeant major and we had a quick chat in the middle of the ambush as to what we were going to do and we turned that we turned the convoy we turned the vehicle convoy around uh, and went back to a went back to a safe spot. Um, unfortunately, my vehicle broke down uh, on the way out of the ambush and that was a bit of a, t- a bit of a tense moment. But when we got back, we we realised that uh, every every armoured plate. On my vehicle, uh, had to be replaced because it had been it had been hit. So I don't know, twelve or fourteen plates on, on one of the vehicles we're in. Every one of them had to be replaced. But uh, that was a really that was a really difficult moment. Um, there's a there's a a longer story to that, but it was um, it was the first time as a, as an officer that I felt the loneliness of command because when we got back after that, we took eight casualties, um, a couple mm. of guys nearly nearly dead. Um, we killed about 20 Taliban in a firefight and we followed them up with Apache gunships afterwards. And then we had to, um, we had to do an airstrike on the vehicle, uh, to deny it to the, to the Taliban because they follow up and take stuff from it. And we were still, there's still some confusion as to whether we got all the people out of the vehicle and we're just about to do an airstrike on it. It's complex and, and... A lot of guys were scared. A lot of guys were scared and shaken up after that. And it really, it really dented my my team of, you know, 120, 130 blokes. Um and we were, you know, we were in an isolated outpost and didn't have anyone else to talk to. And it was the moment, really the first time in my career, and I'd I'd been in 20 years by then, that I that I really felt the loneliness of command. And it it really stuck with me. And I thought to myself, Yeah, I I didn't have a commanding officer, you know, like my boss to to speak to because I could only talk to him on a satellite phone and uh, everybody was looking at me for, you know, what are we going to do next? And a lot of blokes were shaken and some blokes really shaken. A couple of the, you know, certainly one of the young officers found it really difficult and didn't want to go on and all sorts of stuff like that, which I didn't expect. And, you know, you've got to work out what you're going to say to these blokes to motivate them to go back into the fight. But it dawned on me that, you know, that's what being an officer is about you know that's what being an army officer is about It crystallized for me that you know the loneliness of command and you know this is this is showtime you know this is when you step up to the plate and and that's what i did i've never forgotten that moment
1: it must be isolating and it must be lonely i'm just wondering how did how did you deal with that and and what what did you do to um, settle yourself and then re-engage uh, your younger officers and and the soldiers to to focus them, to put their fears behind them so that, yeah, they can go back out and fight again? Um, that's a really good question, mate. And uh, I've thought about that particular
2: day and, and the follow-up to it, like I said earlier, that it's something that has stuck with me and will do for the rest of my life because after that event we got back and there were all these casualties and um a lot of the blokes were shaken and and not everybody in the company was involved in the action so they didn't understand and they they weren't there um so you had you had sort of two groups um and we did a we did an after action review and we 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 talked through the whole incident and that's how we had came up with those those figures for who did what and where it happened and how it happened and why it happened. So we, we we immediately sought to learn lessons from that action while it was still raw and, and quite fresh. But I I spent oh, I reckon nearly a day thinking nonstop of what to say to the company. Because I could see that they were shaken. And, and and this wasn't our first combat action. We'd had some we'd had some um, other <laughs> equally um, challenging days. Um but with great success uh, only a couple of weeks previous uh, and this day the, the, what i've just described came at the end of 3 days of hard fighting where we'd lost already 15 casualties in the company before we got before we got the Sangin ambush um and i still remember vividly walking down to the to the assembled blokes and that that realization that you know this is why you're an officer this is why you're in this is why you're in in command, this is why you're in charge, this is what you're being employed to do. But I still, as I walked up to them, I still wasn't sure what I was going to say. But I knew that this was the moment that that I needed to to reassure them. And I came up with a simple message. And the simple message to them was, uh, you know, this is a, you you have good days and bad days in combat. And the idea is to have more good days than you have bad days. And despite the casualties and and, you know, the the gravity of the situation. They they knew me well enough because I'd, I'd been in command for two years, commanded the same group of men in Iraq. I reminded them that I wasn't going to wrap them in cotton wool and that we were going to get back into the fight the next day um, because that's what the mission was and that's what was needed. You know, we didn't go all the way out there to, to help people, to to shy away, to, to stay in the base. And uh, what really stuck with me after that was this concept that we have in the military of, of a mission and a unifying purpose and unity of effort. And everybody got behind it, and that's, that's what you had to do, and that, that stuck, with me for, stuck with me for the rest of my career.
1: You, um, you talked about some casualties in that exchange, and, and through all your um, deployments, um, how, many, how many men did you lose? Um, on that particular tour in 2007,
2: our battalion had, uh, had nine soldiers killed and we had, uh, close to 60 battle casualties. But, uh, there's been no small sacrifice over the, over the five tours that my battalion did in Afghanistan and elsewhere and, and across the whole British Army. It's, um... You know, it's up in the mid-400s, the total number of um, soldiers um, and airmen, all service men and women um, killed in Afghanistan. It's a, it's a big sacrifice um, and that's something that certainly when I went back to command, my battalion it weighed heavily on my mind.
1: How, how do you think those losses and, and, and the casualties as well have, has affected you personally? Okay. Um, it's changed me as
2: a person, particularly that, uh, particularly that tour. And it changed me in two, um, in two ways. The first thing it did was, uh, it hardened me as a person. It hardened me as a soldier and, uh, and my, my outlook. And when you're in that, when you're in that close combat fight, where you are literally fighting for your life and it's, it's you or them, um, that, that is, a, is a unique experience. Um, it's not for everybody. It's not for, it's not for all soldiers either. But when you're in that experience, when you've got that lived experience, you can't change it. Um, and it did have an effect on me. It, it, it hardened me as to um, what was required to keep people alive in combat and to prevail and achieve a mission. But also it made me more compassionate because when we got back after that tour um, and, and subsequent tours, you, you have to meet the mothers of young men that were killed in action, or young women, or you have to meet their wife, uh, you have to see their, you know you, ha- you have to explain what happened, you have to console them and you have to give them the support. And it really hit home to me the the commitment that the nation makes to its military, and what price that comes at. And certainly, when I went back on my second tour, and I was commanding officer, I I had to write a letter to a a young soldier's wife um, who had been killed on the battlefield, and that was one of the one of the hardest things I had to do because you. Have to you have to get it right, you know. You have to get it right, and I, uh, you know, I I've, I've felt that responsibility, and I felt the responsibility to support that that young wife uh, who just lost lost her husband, and we provided her, and 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 all of the families, because it's not just wives; it's brothers and sisters, and parents and kids. The hardening and the the, the compassion are sort of opposite ends opposite mm. ends of the scale. But as I said earlier, it's the the context and, and that really stuck with me
1: So through this experience um, do you think you've suffered or, or uh, suffering um, from PTSD No I haven't um, but many of my many of my soldiers did and, and for those unfamiliar with PTSD how would you describe it
2: That's a um that's a difficult question to answer. Um because we reviewed in my unit um quite regularly on a monthly basis, sometimes even you know, with greater frequency, um the progress of those people that were that were that were undergoing undergoing treatment. And I d I, I don't think I could I don't think I could sort of draw a box around it and say this is what PTSD is, because it affects people. In my experience, I mean, providing you know some of my friends had had it, and providing support and treatment to others, it's 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 a unique, it's a completely unique um, affliction that uh, affects people in different ways. And and what, what I saw was the, was the manifestation uh, was the manifestation of it um, in an infantry battalion, you know, full of. You know, young, young men, you would, you would see uh, increased drinking, increased uh, alcohol-related problems, which could be um, marital relationship, um, violence.
0: Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way Posting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnbcom post. A lot can happen in the next three years. like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times.
2: yeah, you know, those those sort of things, which are, which I imagine are not unique um, to the to the military.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a perfect example around you know what what the gravity of what you're dealing with when you're deployed um, versus the um, you know the chores that need to be done at home, and and that adjustment um, is is so significant. And I've I've spoken to a lot of um, uh, soldiers that have returned and have struggled with it. And I'm I'm really proud that. Um, through you know this Movember journey we've been able to now fund a number of programs supporting um active servicemen and, and veterans um with their mental health and helping them transition out. And um uh that's you know in a small way how I'm, me and, and the Movember family are um contributing to to this issue. And I, I wanted to talk a little bit about that. The the numbers of of veterans, you know, whether it's UK, Australia, US, Canada that are returning from Iraq and Afghanistan, that have taken their life, it has surpassed the um the deaths on the ground in combat, and um it's a frightening statistic. Um, and I was just wondering, what do you think is contributing to to that issue?
2: It's a um it's a dreadful statistic. Um, I think. I, it would be it would be interesting to explore um, how many of those returned servicemen and women, um, you know, take take their lives while they're still serving, um, versus those that have those that have left the service. And I, I suspect the majority of them fall into the latter category. Mm. And it it brings into into question about how well people transition outside of the military, particularly when they've been in in extremely, you know, traumatic and difficult situations, and I think one of the things that contributes to to the to, to an uneasy ride or the the, the, the difficulty with making that tr- transition for veterans, particularly those from uh, active service, is that. There is a sense that people don't understand what they've been through, and the only people that do understand were the were the were the people in their team that were with them on the on the day or the journey, um, you know, on the on the tour, on the campaign, on the operation, and trying to explain that to somebody about what it's like to to see one of your friends blown up in front of you by a by an IED, or or what it's like to kill somebody you know, with your, with your rifle at close range or, or whatever other experience they've had, people, pe- people, just don't understand that. Hmm. And I think, I think that's a, I think that's a big, I think that's a big, um, contributing factor and it's okay when you're still serving because you're surrounded by people that you, you know, that, that have a, a, a common lived experience that, that have the same narrative, um, because they were there. Um, but when you leave the service and you, you're not surrounded by that familiar organisation and structure and ethos and humour and banter and the support networks, I, I think it would feel quite lonely and, you know, there's a feeling that people don't understand what you've been through and you can't explain it to people because it's too difficult to explain and I, I, I understand that um, perfectly well. Um, and I think that then... Could be the start of a slippery slope, you know.
1: Another really significant transition in a man's life is is becoming a dad, and I was just wondering how did how did that change you? It it changed me a lot. Um, it changed
2: it it changed me um, quite quite a bit more so than I thought it would, and it's a gra- it's a gradual process. But what I, what I found, as it does with, ev- with as it does with every father, I suppose you think everybody has the same experience as yourself. And I know you're a father. you father as well, and got you know, um, yeah, a little a little one. And um, particularly as, as a soldier, at, as I was older, when I was when I was commanding it, when I was commanding a battalion, it gave me a paternal outlook on on the young men and women that I was privileged to to be in charge of. Um, and, it, and it made me look at things through the lens of fatherhood that I couldn't have done beforehand. And it made me think about my own son and it made me think about the parents that had sent their kids to join the military and particularly those that found themselves in, in you know, Difficult situations in close combat. I felt a real responsibility to other parents, um, because I was in, I was in charge of their of their sons and daughters. Uh, I think that made me a more has made me a more rounded character, and certainly a more rounded soldier to mm. be able to look through that to look through that lens.
1: Yeah, and, and being deployed in, and in such high risk environments where the consequences are life and death and you know, being a dad and, and a husband, um, did that make you sort of more conservative in your outlook around risk and, and, uh, and the fight or did it make you more resolute? I think, um,
2: it, it didn't make me more conservative. No, no, it didn't. Um, when we were there in 2007, uh, early on in the campaign where there was, you know, a lot of a lot of close fighting, um, I didn't think about my family a lot. And I remember talking to the young soldiers who were, you know, the 17, 18-year-old guys who were um, desperately missing their girlfriends and stuff like that. And they would always say to me, oh, you know, boss, when are you going to – you know, we'd, we'd, we'd talk about our wives and they'd talk about their girlfriends, of course um, – <laughs> But they would say, you know, when are you going to ring your wife, or when was the last time you spoke? to her? And I say, I speak to my wife once a week, and they always wanted to talk to their girlfriend all the time and send in texts. And I said, I, I said, it might sound strange, but I just don't have the time because I'm thinking about you blokes too much. Hmm. <laughs> I've got to, I've got so much on my plate here, and uh, my daughter was only uh, my daughter was uh, only three or four at the time, I think. And I'd already missed a couple of her birthdays from first time around from when I was in Iraq. Um, but I had so much on my plate. I didn't, I didn't think a lot about my family, but interestingly, second time around when I was, when I was a bit older, I was, uh, 42 when we were there in, in 2012, whilst it didn't affect, you know, my tactical judgment or my tactical decisions, because you've got to put all that sort of stuff behind you. I felt the responsibility as the bloke, you know, ultimately in, in, in command of the battle group. I, I did feel that responsibility to the parents.
1: Um, and, and that was a slightly different dynamic. Hearing details about mixed responsibilities, the life and death consequences of his decisions, made me think about the great divide that exists between military and civilian careers. I've had a few significant career transitions after nine years of military service, then to the corporate world, then to the startup and charity world when we co-founded and started the Movember Foundation. Each transition is different and daunting. I want to know how Mick was handling the prospect of a new career after 28 years of service and all the things that come with that your transition now, so 28 years, um, you've, um, retired from, from the uh, British army. And I was just wondering, like, how is that going? That's a, that's a really good question,
2: mate. And I'm not sure how to answer it. Um, uh, are you, are you sleeping
1: in now? You're, you're not, you know, (laughs) not working out. (laughs) I'm definitely a little bit fatter, um, (laughs)
2: I haven't got the ponytail yet, um, <laughs> but I'll have one like yours at some point, I'm sure. Um, it's not not as I expected, mate. Not as I expected because um, it was. The, it, I decided a year ago that it was about eighteen months ago that it was just the right time for me to to do something different. You know, on the right side of on the right side of fifty, and I wanted I wanted new challenges, but I don't think I've actually nailed down yet exactly, exactly what that is. Um, you know, a year on because you, you spend 28 years in an organization that you're completely familiar with, um, that has all of those things that I, I think are so brilliant about military service, the cohesiveness, the unity of effort that I mentioned before, the common values, the ethos, the humor, um, the sense of self-worth you know, value to the nation responsibility all those great things adventure and all that sort of stuff um, and when you leave as i'm finding now a year on you sort of miss those things
1: and and that that 28 sort of looking at that 28 years is not just professional it, it's personal as well it's 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 all encompassing for the most part you're living on a military base and your kids are uh, going to school with, um, whose parents are also in the military. Um, so it's, it's, it's all encompassing, right? It, it absolutely is. And, you know, the military, you know, life in the
2: military is, it's not a, it's not a job, you know, <laughs> Yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's all consuming. It's a, it's a vocation. It's more than just a job. Right. So, so when you leave, as, as I'm seeing now, In many ways, it's, uh, it's completely different. Mate, Um, have, have you, have you fixed a washing machine yet? I, I did. I got somebody else to do (laughs) it. That's why me and Tanya are still married because I,
1: I navigated through those challenges quite successfully. So is Tanya. I I, I think I did. Is is Tanya liking retired Mick or is is she getting tired of you being around the house?
2: Um, probably a bit of both, (laughs) probably a bit of both. I think I wish I could retire properly. Um but uh i think it may i'm st- i'm still on a bit of a search to find out you know what's next for me because you know business business is you know y- y- your next company that you go work for as a you know as a as a, as a manager or a leader in a in a, in a corporation it, it it's not your next regiment you know it's not the same and you can't look at it that way because they work differently. It's a different structure. There's different values, um, and it's you know perhaps it's more of a job. But mm. I'm still trying to I'm still trying to work that out. And I've had uh, I've had a few jobs in the last couple of years uh, over the last year, um, far more than I expected that I would have, um, and 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 three haven't you know three haven't worked out for for different reasons, um, and I know ne- I never foresaw that being the case and I'm, I'm just about to move somewhere else and do something different and take the family with me. So,
1: Mm. so, so picture this, we're in our nineties and, and we're sitting having a, uh, a wine and, and I ask you on reflection, what, what are you most proud of, um, through your life? I'm proud
2: that I've been married for 20 years and I'm tremendously proud of my, of my wife and, and what she's done, uh, in raising our kids, um, She's a she's a ten out of ten. I give myself a six and a half on a good day.
1: You were very very lucky to find her, mate. <laughs> yeah, you know that. You know that better than anybody else. She's the one that deserves the uh, the military cross. Yeah, yeah.
2: I do remind her of that. Uh, I'm a keeper, though. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, my military career will, will 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 fade over the over the years, but. You know, I'll still have, you know, i still have the support of that family and um, of my family, and and that's what I'm really proud of. But close behind that is is my service, and I'm I'm proud of what I've done. I, I feel hugely privileged to meet all the people and serve with the people I did, and be be trusted with with the responsibilities that I
1: had. And so there will be some servicemen and women listening to this that um, are transi- uh, transitioning back from a deployment or p- possibly contemplating transitioning out of the military. I'm just wondering what what bit of advice would you have for them?
2: I would say don't underestimate the knowledge, skills and experience that you've gained in the military because whilst it's, 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 in, a, it's in a green setting uh, in the military or in the army, um, those those skills are, are, are valued outside, and I think there is a, a tendency from, irrespective of what rank you are when you leave, whether you're a senior officer or a, or, or a junior soldier, people see civil street as as you know they don't they don't understand it, they don't think they'll do well, they don't understand the the language and the terminology, but you get you get bigger, better, stronger. Um, every every day you're in you're in uniform and that's no
1: different when when you're out mm. so Matt, we've been talking for about an hour about you know your military career and and the deployments and and when I did ask around what you'd be most proud of in your 90s and yeah. on reflection you you mentioned tenure and I'm just wondering why that stands out as such an achievement
2: i think um it's something i'm it's something i'm Proud of because we've been gone from we've been gone from Australia for for nearly twenty years and you know that that has also come at a price you know our kids don't see uh, their grandparents as much but what it is what it has meant for us as a family and this is what I'm proud of and, and Tanya's at the centre of this she's the she's not just the foundation but she's the she's the pillar of of, of our family is that we've become a really tight little unit yeah. you know the, the four of us and our dog. And we do everything together, whether it's a pleasant experience or not, we're all in it, (laughs) we're all in it together. Um, And, you know, we've, we've been, we've been away from our friends and family that, you know, predominantly back in Australia and we've made new friends in Europe and the UK and Cyprus and Africa and, uh, and elsewhere. But it's really, it's really bonded us as a, as a little family unit. And that's what, that's what I'm really proud of. I'm proud of the fact that, you know, we're coming up to 20 years, 20 years of marriage and. You know, I, I think it's, I think it's a good institution. Um, it's, uh, it, it's, it's kept us together. It's like you say, it, fleeting relationships and it's a strong relationship. And I'm, it's not, it, it's not one that everybody can make work for a variety of reasons, but for us, it's, it's something I hold dear.
1: Yeah. And you, you've got to work at it, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You have. And We've both gotten better at that over the years, um, as you, as you mellow, as you get older, and you become more tolerant. And you know the, the challenges that that kids bring, and how much they how much they test you. And I've got I've got great kids, but you know I'm, I'm no better father than the than the next bloke. I don't think. Um, but I see that you know, particularly during my, during my time in uniform you know, the strain, it, the the strain and the burden it, it put on, on Tanya and, and I was, you know, she stepped up to the plate when, 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 when she had to, and, and she didn't have to. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of her. I'm really proud of her for that because, you know, not, not everybody can do it. It's not for everybody. Being a military spouse is, is not every, it, it doesn't work for everybody. Um, it's it's hard and it's 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 demanding and you know when your husband's in difficult situations or your husband doesn't come back or he comes back wounded or you know or, or, or faces challenges afterwards mental health or physically it's it, it's hard for it's hard for it's hard for wives and um, it's been hard for my wife um, as well uh, so I value that you know I value that part of the relationship.
1: And I always will. Well, mate, it's been an amazing chat. I wanted to thank you for your service and for your support of Movember and uh, for your friendship. It means a lot. Yeah, likewise to your gang, mate. We need to have another chat just to talk about other stuff, what's going on. All right, mate. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Movember podcast. We'd like to thank Mick Aston and the British Forces Broadcasting Studio in Cyprus and Argo Studios in New York. And the Movember Foundation team, John Ackerman and Kirsty Wood. Music in this episode is from the Free Music Archive. Mixing by Dara Hirsch. The Movember Podcast is produced and edited by Rose Reed, and I'm your host, Adam Garoni. If you like our show, subscribe on iTunes, Audio Boom, Spotify, Google Play. Wherever you get your podcasts, or better yet, leave a review or tell a friend. It really helps other people find us. When we get this release, make sure you tweet it out to your ten followers, will you?
2: (laughs) I don't even on Twitter.
1: All right.